It's 23 to 4 on a fart. Tonight's crack. Vietcong, yes we can, says Battle of Abbak. Tigers taken to town. Kilinochchi captured. And Ronnie Reagan picked to run California. Plus, coming up, Jackanori time with the story of a brave little boy who goes to town and gets burnt by a sunbeam. Those are the headlines. God help us all. News bang. Cutting through the fog of fiction with the sword of fact. 1963. On this day in 1963, the Vietnam War raged on like a barbecue in a napalm factory. North Vietnam, backed by the Soviets and Chairman Mao's Chinese takeaway, were hell-bent on bringing their brand of communism to South Vietnam, much to the dismay of Uncle Sam and his South Vietnamese sidekicks. Enter the Viet Cong, a guerrilla group that could camouflage themselves as jungle foliage better than David Attenborough on PCP. The Battle of Abbak was a turning point. US and South Vietnamese forces thought they had them cornered like an NVA rat in a VC drain pipe. But no! The Viet Cong fought back with AK 40 V7s blazing, RPGs popping off left, right, and center left, and even some homemade landmines made from old bicycle parts and Tet offensive. Despite overwhelming firepower and enough napalm to cook an entire rainforest medium rare, the Allies were sent packing with their B-52 tails between their F-16s. The Viet Cong emerged victorious, having lost only three sandals and a monocle belonging to General Custer's ghost. Undetermine. 2009. In a stunning display of military one-upmanship, the Tamil Tigers have been told to put their paws up and surrender their weapons. The Sri Lankan army has reclaimed the town of Kilinochi from the tenacious grip of the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam marking a pivotal moment in what some are calling the most elongated game of capture the flag. The Sri Lankan armed forces, under General Sir Denzil Sarong Bandaranaiki Worcestershire source, finally cornered the rebels in their jungle hideout. After a tense standoff lasting several poppadums, Prawn emerged waving a white flag and a garland of marigolds. We surrender, he said through a translator who was later shot. We simply couldn't take any more Dad's Army theme tunes being played at full volume all night. The capture of Kilinochchi deals a devastating blow to the LTTE's administrative centre, leaving them without so much as a cardboard box to plan their civil war in. As for the future of Tamil Elam, well, it looks like it might be back to being just another Tuesday night takeaway. 1967. America now. It's 1967 and Ronald Reagan fresh from his stint as a B-list actor and part-time lizard, has just been sworn in as the third governor of California. Little did he know that one day he'd go on to become the 40th president of America. Quite an achievement for a man who struggled with numbers. Reagan was known for his conservative views, which he often wore tucked into his trousers, and a firm handshake that could crush a liberal's hand like a ripe tomato. His tenure as governor saw him clash with trade unions, ballooning deficits, and his own hairspray addiction. Fast forward to today, and it's Gavin Newsom at the helm of the Golden State, an apt title considering how much gold there is in politics these days. Newsom has pledged to pick up where Reagan left off, by being vaguely right-wing and having even more hair product than sense. News bang. 
The truth is always out there, even when it's in here. Presenting the weather forecast, Shakanaka Giles, with a nippy winter's day ahead, featuring sunshine, snow and rain in various regions of the UK. Tomorrow, a crisp winter's day awaits. The southeast will be graced with sunshine, a bit like a golden retriever bounding over after a long winter's nap. Temperatures around 5 degrees, so wrap up warm, unless you fancy the sensation of icicles forming on your eyelashes. In the Midlands, expect a dusting of snow, a bit like icing sugar on a Christmas cake. The chill factor will be around 2, so perhaps leave the ice sculpting for another day. The northwest, however, will be drenched in rain, a bit like a leaky tap that's been left on all night. It's a good day to stay indoors and watch the raindrops race each other down the window pane. In summary, a golden sunrise, a frosty nip, and a soggy northwest, and that's all the weather. Twenty sixteen. In a dramatic turn of events, the year 2016 witnessed the execution of Nimr al-Nimr, a revered Shia cleric, alongside 46 others by the Saudi government. The execution, a response to al-Nimr's vocal criticism of the Saudi administration and his advocacy for democratic elections, sparked a wave of global protests and condemnation. To shed light on the unfolding situation, we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable, who's on the ground knee-deep in the latest developments. In the desert of darkness, the war drums are pounding. In the distance, a swirling sandstorm, and there, the distant glint of steel, the roar of engines. The stench of war is on the wind. The sands of time have shifted. This is the place where men will die for a cause. The lines are drawn. And there, a figure alone atop a dune. The prophet Nimr al-Nimr in his final moments. The executioner, the blackest of souls, approaches the man of God, fearless, unafraid. The sword rises, falls, the head of the prophet rolls, the blood of the martyr soaks the sands. The storm descends, the sky weeps, the winds of war howl, the storm rages and the world watches. As I stand here, I am filled with anger, I am filled with rage. I am filled with a desire to fight back, but I know that I am just one man, I know that I am just one voice, but I also know that I am not alone. This is Brian Bastable, reporting from the front line of the battle for freedom. This is Brian Bastable, reporting from the front line of the battle for justice. This is Brian Bastable, reporting from the front line of the battle for a better world. Brian Bastable, Newsbang. 1680. The year is 1680. Java, the most populous island in the world, was the stage for the Trunajaya Rebellion. Led by the Madaris Prince Trunajaya, it was a three-year uprising against the Mataram Sultanate and the Dutch East India Company. The rebellion was brutally quashed, with Trunajaya meeting his end at the hands of Amankurat II. 
The Dutch East India Company, established in 1602, was the first multinational corporation with quasi-governmental powers. Ken Shit has more on the Trunajaya Rebellion and its impact on Java. Greetings, you lowly peasants! As we journey back to the year 1680, let's revel in the memory of a time when men were men and princes were total fucking morons. Meet Trunajaya, the Madurese prince who thought he could take on the might of the Mataram Sultanate and the Dutch East India Company. He was like a fly buzzing around an elephant's ass, thinking he could make a difference. Rebellion lasted from 1674 to 1681, and it was about as successful as a naked man trying to start a fire with wet matches. He was slaughtered like a pig at a barbecue by Amankurat II, the Susuhunan of the Sultanate of Mataram. Talk about a shit ending. Now let's talk about these Dutch motherfuckers. The Dutch East India Company was established in 1602 and was the first multinational corporation with quasi-governmental powers. They were like modern-day supervillains, except they wore fancy hats instead of spandex suits. So let this be a lesson to you all. Don't mess with the big boys. Don't try to take on corporations or governments that have more money and power than God himself. It won't end well for you. Trust me, I know from experience. This is Ken Shit, reminding you to keep your head down and your mouth shut. Uh, 1991. In a flashback to 1967, the political landscape was forever altered as Ronald Reagan embarked on his journey in government, ascending to the esteemed position of California's 33rd governor. His conservative legacy would eventually catapult him to the highest office in the land as the 40th president of the United States. Fast forward to the present day, and Gavin Newsom now holds the reins of power in California. As we delve deeper into this intriguing tale, let's turn to our reporter, Hardiman Pesto, for further insights. I'm with the current governor of California, Gavin Newsom. What year is it? It's 1967, Martin. Pesto, what are you talking about? This is a live broadcast. That's right, Martin. We're in 1967. Ronald Reagan is just about to start his career in government as the 33rd governor of California. And you're telling me this from the future? Or is the past? Or is it just me? That's right, Martin. How did you get here? I was walking down the street and I tripped over a manhole cover. When I looked up, I was in 1967. You expect us to believe that? It's the truth, Martin. And you just happened to be holding a microphone and a satellite uplink? Yes, Martin. And what does Governor Reagan think about this sudden leap into the future? He said, what, what's next, flying cars? And what did you say? I said, uh, no, but I do have a holographic phone. You're lying, Pesto. No, I'm not. I'll prove it. Gavin, can you hear me? Yes, Hardiman. What year is it? It's 1967, Martin. You see, Pesto? No, Martin, that's just a voice clip I recorded last week. Pesto, you're digging yourself a hole. No, I'm not. I'm standing on solid ground in 1967. Pesto, we're going to have to cut this interview short. But we haven't even talked about Reagan's policies yet. Pesto, I'm giving you one last chance. What year is it? It's 2024, Martin. Thank you, Pesto. That's all we needed to hear. But I'm still in 1967. And that's where you'll stay, Pesto. But I need to get back to my own time. Pesto, you're on your own. But I don't know how to get back. You should have thought of that before you tripped over that manhole cover. But I didn't mean to. Pesto, you're a journalist. You should always mean what you do. But I didn't mean to trip. Pesto, that's enough. We're cutting your feed. But I'm still in 1967. 
Goodbye, Pesto. But I'm not ready to go. Pesto, this is Newsbang. We're always ready to go. Newsbang. A dose of truth to cure the common lie. Uh, 1991. In a historic first, Sharon Pratt Dixon ascended to the esteemed position of mayor of Washington, D.C., becoming the first African-American woman to hold the office. Born in the district, she served from 1991 to 1995, overseeing district services, public property, police and fire protection, public agencies, and the district public school system. Her tenure was marked by an annual budget of a whopping zero euro, eight cents billion. As we delve deeper into this tale of groundbreaking political ascension, let's turn to our correspondent Melody Wintergreen for further insights. In the heart of the nation's capital, history is not just being read, it's being written. Sharon Pratt Dixon strides into the mayoral office, shattering glass ceilings and etching her name in the annals of American governance. The year is 1991, and Washington, D.C. witnesses a dawn as Pratt Dixon becomes the first African-American woman to wield the mayoral gavel in this city of political giants. She's not just running a city, she's sprinting into legend. As the first African-American woman to command the city's chariot, she steers towards a future where district laws are not just words on paper, but symphonies of justice in action. With an eagle eye on an annual budget that whispers austerity yet bellows ambition, Mayor Dixon orchestrates a ballet of bureaucracy and service that would make even Uncle Sam tap his feet. As she steps into her role, born from the very soil she's set to cultivate, Pratt Dixon represents more than just political progress. She embodies the heartbeat of a community, a community that has seen its silhouette sketched into every corner of this country's canvas, the African-American populace whose roots run as deep as their aspirations soar high. And so, as Sharon Pratt Dixon takes her place at the mayor's desk, it's clear that this isn't just a chapter in a history book, it's a living legacy being penned with each policy and proclamation. This is Melody Wintergreen, witnessing history hand-in-hand hand with hope here in Washington, D.C. Penelope Winchime brings us a tale of nature's wrath and human resilience. As she recounts the events of 1976, when an extratropical cyclone ravaged Western Europe, leaving a trail of destruction in its wake. The whispers of history rustle through the leaves of time, and today they speak of 1976, a year when Mother Nature, in her most tempestuous mood, unleashed a cyclone so fierce it danced upon Western Europe like a wild banshee at a celestial ball. The cyclone, with the breath of a thousand dragons, huffed and puffed until it blew down houses and swept away dreams in an angry froth of sea foam. Eighty-two souls were plucked from our earthly garden by this ferocious Zephyr's fingers. The British Isles bore the brunt of this atmospheric tantrum, their land scarred by winds that could slice through stone, as if it were but butter on the breakfast table of giants. And oh, the North Sea swelled like an overfilled bathtub, sloshing its contents onto unsuspecting shores with the abandon of a mischievous child. When all was said and done, pockets were emptied to the tune of a $1.3 billion, 
coins clinking into the abyss as humanity paid its dues to the wrathful skies. Let us remember this day, not just for nature's fury, but as a siren song warning us to respect her power or face her stormy serenade once more. I'm Penelope Winchime, your scribe of the skies and seas. AD Dose, 2004. And now, Calamity Prenderville takes us on a journey through the cosmos with the Stardust Space Probe, an extraordinary tale of British innovation, comets, and an asteroid named after a beloved diarist. Prepare to be awestruck. Today, we're talking about the Stardust Space Probe, a marvel of technology that's been collecting particle samples from the coma of Comet Wild 2. Not to be confused with Comet Wild 1, which, as we all know, was a massive disappointment in the comet world. Discovered by Swiss astronomer Paul Wilde in 1978, this comet has a coma formed when it passes near the Sun. And what's a coma, you ask? Well, it's not a spa treatment, but rather the atmosphere of a comet formed when it gets close to the Sun. The word coma comes from the Greek word for hair, which is fitting, because comets are like the crazy, wild hair of the solar system. But that's not all. The Stardust space probe also studied the asteroid 5235 Anna Frank during its mission. Yep, that Anne Frank. Named after the famous cupboard-dwelling diarist, this asteroid is a testament to the power of British innovation. So, whether you're a space enthusiast or just a fan of wild, crazy hair, the Stardust space probe is a marvel of technology that's sure to leave you in awe. Could this be the future of space exploration? Only time will tell. This is Calamity Prenderville from Newsbang, signing off. News bang, squeezing the charlatans until the charade pops. 5.33 In the annals of papal history, the year 533 stands out as a watershed moment. Pope John II, or Mercurius, ascended to the papacy, breaking tradition by adopting a new name. A man of action, he removed Bishop Contumeliosus of Ries from office, convened a council on the readmission of Arian clergy, and approved an edict of Emperor Justinian. And now, for a deeper dive into the intricacies of papal names, we turn to our resident religious correspondent, Pastor Kevin Monstrance. Good evening, ladies and gents. Your friendly neighbourhood vicar, Kevin Monstrance here, reporting live from the Newsbang studio. Now, I was just having a chinwag with our producer backstage, and he informed me that today is January 2nd, 2024. Can you believe it? Seems like just yesterday it was 1999, and we were all worried that the Y2K bug was going to send us back to the dark ages. Just goes to show... Time flies when you're having an existential crisis about the accelerating pace of technology. <laughs> but speaking of the past, tonight I thought we'd go way back to the hallowed days of 533 AD. Back then, the head honcho calling the shots in the Catholic Church was one Pope John Sector, or Pope Mercurius, as he was born. Now, most popes back then just kept their original names when they took over as top holy man, but not Pope John. He decided he needed a fancy new moniker to celebrate his papal promotion. 
a bit pretentious if you ask me, but I suppose when you're God's representative on earth, you can call yourself whatever you like. <laughs> now Pope John had a busy reign, let me tell you. Excommunicating unruly bishops, approving decrees, the usual medieval papal pastimes. But it wasn't all work, and no play. Rumour has it, this Pope loved himself a good jest. In fact, he was known to travel with a court jester named Biggest Dickus. Yes, history records that as his actual name, don't blame me. Now, Biggest Dickus had one joke he would tell over and over again, because it never failed to leave the Pope in stitches. The joke went like this. There was a man called Sven who lived in a small village in the frozen north. One day Sven's goat got loose and ran up onto the thin ice of the lake and fell through. Poor Sven didn't know what to do. Suddenly a friendly vicar was passing by. Help me, father, cried Sven. My goat is drowning. Not to worry, my son, said the vicar. Just pray to the Lord and he will help you. Sven got down on his knees and prayed with all his might. Sure enough, God appeared in the sky above. Please, Lord, said Sven, make a miracle and save my goat. God thought for a moment and said, You know, Sven, I think it would be better if you just learned to take care of your own goat. And with that, God disappeared. Sven shook his fist to the heavens and yelled, Fine, I'll do it myself, you lousy good-for-nothing deity. And with that, he jumped into the freezing lake to rescue his goat. As the vicar helped pull them both to safety, Sven said, You know, father, maybe next time it would be faster if you just pushed me in. <laughs> well, I can see the producer waving for me, wrap this up. Always leaves them wanting more. That's my motto. God bless you, folks. And may all your goats stay safe on solid ground. All right, here's the final roundup of tomorrow's front pages. The Telegraph, Yankee sold to Yank Boss. The Independent, Pope excommunicates Martin Luther. The Mail, British lose to bloody Yanks. And finally, The Sun, Pope bans fat German. That's it for tonight's news bang. Oh, and by the way, if you're listening in Wigan, the police have issued a warrant for the arrest of a woman who stole a pig and two sheep from a farm in Standish. They say she's a large woman, and they're hoping to catch her in the next few days. Good night. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night. <laughs>